This is Guns and Butter. Monetary policy really defines the sovereignty of a country. It's the ability of a country to actually finance its own developments through lending to the private sector, the building of public uh, infrastructure, and so on. And that is ultimately what, what economic sovereignty is all about. It's the ability of a country to use its monetary instruments to finance development. And that ability is denied under the prevailing relations that these countries have with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the creditors. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosarovsky. Today's show, Neoliberalism and the New World Order. Michel Chosarovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we discuss global financial war as outlined in Professor Chosodovsky's article, Wall Street Behind Brazil Coup d'État. The role played by the IMF and World Bank in the economies of debtor nations, the Real Plan in Brazil, the imposition of the Washington Consensus, loss of national sovereignty, neoliberal institution funding of grassroots movements, the main corporate actors of the New World Order, the function of propaganda, and the process of global impoverishment and destruction of nation-states. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome again. Delighted to be on the program on these very important issues of, of the New World Order. In our recent program, Global Warfare, Is the U.S.-NATO Going to Attack Russia?, you talked about global, nuclear, conventional, and non-conventional war. Non-conventional war includes global financial warfare. Let's take one of the most recent examples, regime change in Brazil. Your recent article, Wall Street, behind Brazil coup d'etat, lays out an argument that control over monetary policy and macroeconomic reform was the ultimate objective of the Brazilian coup d'etat against Dilma Rousseff. What is the evidence? Well, the evidence is the following. When um, Luis Ignacio da Silva, President Lula, um, set up his government back in 2003, he appointed a former CEO of a Wall Street bank, Fleet Boston Financial Global Banking to head the Central Bank of Brazil. And uh, it was, in a sense, like appointing the fox in charge of the chicken coop, so to speak. And what was disturbing there is that all the major appointments which this progressive Workers' Party government uh, implemented, namely the Ministry of Finance, 
the Central Bank, the Bank of Brazil, which is a development bank, they were held by neoliberals. And in fact, the IMF had given its support to the Lula government. And in fact, they even congratulated the Lula government on, on its, uh, on its uh, austerity measures and so on. And Enrique de Campos Mereles, who was president of the Central Bank of Brazil and, and also former president of Fleet Boston Financial Global Banking before he headed the Central Bank of Brazil, uh, stayed in that position until the um, presidency of Lula's uh, successor, Dilma Rousseff. And Dilma Rousseff, in fact, uh, appointed a career uh, Ministry of Finance official to uh, head the central bank, and Mereles was dropped from, from the government. Uh, now, this was, from my standpoint, a very significant move because it, it was a message to Wall Street saying, we decide on key appointments in the spheres of economy and finance. And um, the coup which led to uh, the installation of a provisional government led by Michel Temer, it's an interim government, Essentially, what they did from one day to the next was to appoint a new finance minister who happened to be this notorious individual, Enrique de Campos Mereles, a former CEO in Wall Street. He was an appointed finance minister. And again, then they put together a team of, of um, appointments uh, in, the, in the key positions now, it's not so much, it's not only the fact that Campos Mereles is a Wall Street um, appointee, he's also a U.S. citizen. And Campos Mereles then appoints his man to, to the central bank, whose name is Ilan Goldfein. Uh, and Ilan Goldfein was uh, chief economist with, uh, with um, one of uh, Brazil's major private financial institutions. And Ilan Goldfein happens to be an Israeli citizen. And he also happens to be a very, a very close friend of Stanley Fisher, who was um, previously number two at the IMF, and then he became governor of the Bank of Israel, and Stanley Fisher currently holds uh, the number two position at the U.S. Federal Reserve. He's a vice chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve. And um, uh, parenthesis, both Ilan Goldfein and Stanley Fisher um, have U.S. citizenship. Goldfein was... Um, head of the Central Bank of Brazil, was born in Israel, and he has dual citizenship. I'm not criticizing his citizenship, but I'm, I'm focusing on the crony relationships between these individuals. Okay? So now you have a Central Bank governor who, is a, who has a close personal relationship with Stanley Fisher, number two at, 
at the Fed. Known and documented, it's always the number two man that calls the shots, ultimately, because that's where all the policy formulations are, are made. So that, that's the background. Now, where, does, uh, where do, let's say, left progressive movements come in? Um, or they came in right at the outset of the Lula administration and uh, European, North American, Latin American progressives applauded in chorus, celebrating the victory of a socialist government against the neoliberal agenda. And they said, victory against neoliberalism. It wasn't a victory against neoliberalism. It was, in fact, uh, the co-optation of a of a workers' party leadership, not the grassroots, by, by Wall Street, uh, with a whole set of Wall Street appointments, uh, which started with Lula and um, up to a certain point was disrupted under, under Dilma Rousseff. How much power does the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank wield over Brazil's economy? Well, let me... Open a parenthesis there. Very often people say the IMF World Bank, they establish these harsh conditionalities on developing countries. They force them to implement austerity measures and so on and so forth. That is a correct description of uh, IMF World Bank activities. The, the structural adjustment programs that are imposed on developing countries are deadly. But it is not the IMF and the World Bank, which are, in fact, bureaucracies, which call the shots. The IMF and the World Bank are instruments of Wall Street. They're instruments of the private banking nexus. Uh, the IMF and the World Bank, they have their independence, their Breton Woods institutions. But legally, they are connected to the United Nations in a very hazy it's a very hazy relationship, but they're supposed to be connected to the United Nations. In practice, they're not. But they don't call the shots. It's Wall Street that calls the shots. And it's very convenient for Wall Street to, to have these Washington-based institutions, which will then, through intergovernmental relations, will establish links with governments and so on and so forth. It's an intergovernmental, uh, inter intergovernmental bodies. Now, what I'm suggesting here... Uh, is that as far as appointments are concerned, the IMF, the World Bank, have a, a very significant impact. They're part of the so-called Washington Consensus, um, which is also linked up to the Wall Street Consensus. Uh, we notice that uh, very often it's a former World Bank official which is appointed to the Ministry of Finance. That was the case in 1991 when finance minister in, in India, Manmoha Singh, who later became prime minister, he was appointed to the Ministry of Finance, and he implemented what was called a new economic policy, which led to devastation. It was supported by the World Bank. And in other words, the World Bank and the IMF, they had their people on the inside. I would say more the World Bank. Because the World Bank can be in the ministries, it can be in the Ministry of Finance, and the Ministry of Agriculture, and so on. 
and ultimately there's a there's a consensus in terms of policy making which which emerges but then if you're talking about the impact that let's say these these loan agreements have they're devastating because they will say uh, you have to cut your budget in in uh, in all the social sectors health education etc you have to close down the hospitals close down or privatize some of the schools um, introduce user fees and in effect what these institutions uh, do is to precipitate countries into poverty and they also contribute to the destabilization of, of the national economy and we see that in many countries uh, uh, in Venezuela in fact what they've done is very similar to what they did or has some relationship to what they did in, in Chile in 1973, they create conditions of collapse of commodity markets, uh, you know, uh, uh, scarcity of commodities, uh, rising inflation, um, breakdown of distribution of, uh, of goods, not to mention um, problems of, of urban security and organized crime, et cetera, et cetera, in, in, uh, in Caracas. Those are engineered conditions. And, uh, of course, they've also created conditions which have bankrupted the, the state because the price of oil has collapsed from over $100 a barrel to something of the order of $30 a barrel. And this uh, has, has, uh, has contributed to the, the bankruptcy of, of, the, of the Venezuelan government. What is the real plan in Brazil? It is very important. Uh, well, you, you know, it, really the real plan is, is a plan to essentially dollarize all internal debt operations so that country doesn't really have a monetary policy. Uh, it, it links the, the, the national currency to the dollar and it means that it has to be supported by forex transactions to maintain that parity. And then it really means that, that whenever, let's say, if, if you want to use your monetary policy to, to mobilize internal resources, uh, it turns out to be dollarized. It, it's the same plan that they had in, in um, Argentina under um, uh, Menem. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Neoliberalism and the New World Order. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that, quote, the objective of the coup d'etat was to deny Brazil's sovereignty in the formulation of macroeconomic policy. Why is Wall Street or the United States against a nation's sovereignty? Well, that's a very important question. And it really has to do with monetary policy. Uh, monetary policy really defines the sovereignty of a country. It's the ability of a country to actually finance its own development through, uh, you know, through, through lending to the private sector. Uh, the building of public uh, infrastructure and so on. And to do that, uh, you have to be able to increase the levels of internal debt. I mean, we do it in the United States and, and Canada and so on. We, 
We use debt operations to fund uh, infrastructure, roads, uh, schools, and hospitals. Okay, but what is at stake um, in developing countries is that the currency is dollarized and it's upheld by in currency markets. It's upheld by dollar-denominated debts, which have to be incurred to support the currency. So that when you start expanding the money supply to finance development, you really, it's a difficult and complex mechanism, you really have to borrow in dollars. And, and really what, what it means is that your currency really is a proxy. It's a dollarized currency. So that each time you want to build a road or a bridge or a hydroelectric complex, using your domestic resources, you have to increase your indebtedness in dollar terms. In other words, the internal debt becomes a foreign debt. And that is ultimately what happened in Brazil with the, with the Real Plan. The Real Plan established the Real as um, the Brazilian currency on a peg uh, with the U.S. dollar, you know, sustained by persistent um, propping up of the currency uh, to maintain that parity. And what it meant is that Brazil was indebting itself in terms of dollars and each time it expands its, uh, let's say, its levels of expenditure and so on and so forth, it ultimately has to borrow in dollars. And uh, what that means, to get back to the question, is that it's Wall Street that controls monetary policy, and all actions of uh, internal development, funding infrastructure, schools, uh, uh, roads, and so on, requires borrowing dollars to do it. And I, I'll give one example of this, is Vietnam, in the wake of um, its normalization with, uh, with the United States, uh, decided to initiate a major uh, project of repairing the, the country's main highway uh, which uh, links the capital Hanoi in, in the north to um, Ho Chi Minh City, or f what was formerly known as Saigon. It's called Road Number One. Okay, you know, <laughs> the East Coast of the United States also has a road, uh, you know, linking New York right down to to Miami. And um, what happened is that the project was to repair the road. And for that, they had to have an international tender uh, by construction companies uh, coming in, big multi-million dollar, you know, contracts. And to repair the road, they needed foreign capital. But in fact, what the foreign capital would do was to subcontract with local enterprises, which then would build the road. And what happens under that type of mechanism is the transformation of an internal debt into an external debt. And um, you don't need 
to bring in foreign capital to, to repair a road or even to build a road. The technologies are there. The know-how is, is there. Uh, and you don't need much uh, investment in terms of capital or materials. It's all local. And that, uh, that is the, the mechanics, is that immediately these financial institutions, once they, they normalize with the country, they will say, okay, uh, we're going to lend you money um, on the World Bank project to build a road, uh, but it has to be an offer of tender uh, to international uh, construction companies, blah, blah, blah. And then the money we lend you, you, you use it to pay these, these companies. Uh, and that's how countries get indebted. And they are unable under World Bank IMF auspices to mobilize internal debt operations. And uh, I've seen this in numerous countries. There's what is called the PIP, uh, Public Investment Program, uh, which is a list of projects. And the World Bank ultimately goes through uh, this list and they can choose which ones they want to finance. And uh, they override the government in the choice of investment projects. And that is ultimately what, what economic sovereignty is all about. It's the ability of a country to use its monetary instruments to finance development. And that, and that ability is denied under, under the, prevailing, the prevailing relations that these countries have with the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the creditors. Well, then... It's true that if a country can issue its own debt internally, then they can control that, that policy and the effects it have. But if, if the debt is externalized, then all of the control is taken away from them, right? Precisely. I think, I mean, you've formulated exactly that. That is the, 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 the nature of that relationship, is that once they are brought into the the nexus of, uh, of these international financial institutions, which uh, monitor their, their investment projects and provide funding, well, then that funding is external, is dollarized, and in turn, it is then subject to conditionalities imposed by the creditors of a policy nature. So they will say, oh, we helped you build that road. And uh, you now have a, you know, a 50 million, $100 million debt. Uh, you now have to repay that debt. And then the government said, well, we don't have any money to repay it. And then they will say, okay, we'll lend you money, but then you have to accept certain policy conditionalities, which we will impose. In other words, close down your hospitals and your schools. That's the way these austerity measures work. And then they'll say, well, you have to privatize. So that, in effect, the process of, of making countries indebted is the, the key to taking control of their sovereignty. Now, in the European Union, the mechanics are somewhat different. There, there's the famous Maastricht Treaty, which goes back prior to the, to the Eurozone. And the Maastricht Treaty uh, stipulates essentially that or, or establishes the basis whereby the individual member states cannot fund their development from central bank operations. 
And ultimately then, of course, you have the European Central Bank. And this, in a sense, creates conditions whereby the individual member states, particularly the weaker ones, like, you know, like Greece, uh, Ireland, Portugal, are, are virtually their, their, their sovereignty is derogated because they can't use their resources. They don't have a national currency to, uh, to finance their own development. And then what happens is that their assets are taken over, privatization, uh, impoverishment, and so on and so forth. We see it happening in, in, uh, in several European countries. Greece is, of course, a notorious example where this uh, mechanism has, has occurred. And, and the European Central Bank, in effect, is playing a role which is, in some regards, similar to that of the IMF, in, in another context, of course, the IMF is acting in relation to, to Brazil, but the IMF more recently has also acted in relation to countries like, like uh, Greece and, and Portugal. Right, and I think it's important for people to understand that if a government creates its own debt or creates its own credit, it can use that to help the economy and not to destroy it. Like, for instance... Let's just say theoretically that the Fed uh, in the U.S., uh, let's say it was part of the Treasury or even, even as it is now privatized, if they issued no-interest loans to states or whatever, they could use that to help the economy rather than destroy it, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, it's not, it's not money which uh, creates uh, real wealth, uh, by real wealth or real economy wealth. By real wealth, I mean, I'm not talking about the wealth of individuals. I'm talking about infrastructure, schools, hospitals, uh, roads, and so on. The resources in the United States of America are there. It's, it's the real economy. It's, it's the people plus the resources plus the equipment and so on, which ultimately will lead to projects. And then you need mechanisms which will mobilize those resources. And they, uh, they could be uh, loans uh, at 0% interest, uh, or they could be, of course, uh, commercial loans at very high interest. And uh, they could be all sorts of impediments to the, to the uh, increase of public expenditure in support of projects, because, again, the, the Treasury is ultimately uh, under the surveillance of, of Wall Street, of the, of the Federal Reserve, which in turn is also an appendage of Wall Street. So that, you know, monetary policy is central to any kind of societal project. Uh, and uh, that's why the, the debate, let's say, on the democratization of monetary policy uh, is, is so crucial, of the banking system in general. Uh, so that if we have a banking system which is controlled by J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and so on, we're not going to necessarily be able to fund the things that we want to fund. We'll be funding casinos, we'll be funding uh, you know, entertainment complexes and hotels and so on, uh, but we're not going to be funding the basic social infrastructure uh, which will uplift the standard of living of, of millions of people. And I think that is the, the situation which characterizes uh, uh, U.S. monetary policy. I should mention that a large share of, of, public, uh, of public expenditure is, of course, allocated to produce uh, weapons. 
It's the military-industrial complex. It's the so-called defense contractors. Uh, and those, uh, again, uh, require, well, it, it has to do with government debt. It has to do with spending patterns. Uh, it has to do with the Treasury. But again, when creditors call the shots and decide what has to be funded in terms of uh, infrastructure, uh, the tendency is to fund precisely areas uh, such as defense rather than schools and hospitals. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Neoliberalism and the New World Order. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So then using Brazil as an example, what is the effect then of imposing the Washington consensus on Brazil? How does it benefit the U.S., and what are the negative effects on Brazil? Well, the case of Brazil is, is certainly not unique. Um, I think uh, what distinguishes Brazil is, uh, from other developing countries, particularly Latin America, is that, first of all, it has a population of over 200 million people, uh, it's a large country in its own right, with tremendous resources and infrastructure and so on. But what, what characterizes uh, this relationship, let's say, between Washington, Wall Street on the one hand and, and Brazil on the other, is the fact that by taking control of monetary policy, you ultimately take control of the real resources of a country. The objective is not simply to, to occupy the, the, uh, the central bank or the Ministry of Finance. The objective is ultimately to be able to take control over major areas of, uh, of Brazil's economic development process through privatization, uh, through uh, the buy-up of Brazilian companies and so on and so forth, We've seen this developing in the course of the last, I would say, in the course of the last 20 years uh, that, um, you know, U.S. dominant financial and economic uh, corporate interests are uh, appropriating large sectors of this wealthy economy. Uh, you know, we're talking about resources, mining, forestry, but also industrial development. The name of the game is privatization, and uh, countries like Brazil, but let's, say, let's take another case, countries like South Korea, with tremendous industrial capabilities, uh, when the IMF imposed uh, its devastating reforms in, in 1997, during the so-called Asian crisis it, it imposed on South Korea, the objective was ultimately to confiscate real assets literally, to confiscate real assets. But they didn't only confiscate real assets, they took over banking. They took over research institutes. Uh, uh, ultimately, through financial manipulation, you acquire oversight on a, another country's resources. You will find similar occurrences in other countries. And to get back to Brazil, Brazil is a very wealthy country, and there's lots of assets to be taken over. And we see that now the, the rules of the game is to take over assets. 
Uh, we see it in, in Greece now with, uh, with the conditions imposed by, by um, uh, German, French, and American creditors on the Greek Ministry of Finance. So that is, the, that is the order of the day, is that it's not only sovereignty which is at stake, it's the plunder of national economies by international financial institutions leading to transfer of wealth, whereby these U.S. companies take over large sectors of the economy through a process of manipulation. In your article, Counterpropaganda as an Instrument of Peace, Fidel Castro and the Battle of Ideas, the Dangers of Nuclear War, you write that, quote, a worldwide process of impoverishment is an integral part of the New World Order agenda. Describe what you consider to be the New World Order. Well, the New World Order is a hegemonic um, project uh, of ultimately conquering sovereign countries and, in a sense, corporatizing their governments. It's also, it's the very structures of macroeconomic reform, but it's also the trade initiatives, the TTIP, the, the, the TPP, the two major areas of trade integration, the Atlantic and the Pacific, um, which ultimately transfer the powers of policymakers into the hands of corporations. Now, that, in effect, has already occurred. We don't have independent governments, sovereign governments anymore, even in Western countries. We, we can go back to, let's say, to the era of, of uh, well, in Europe, we might go back to Charles de Gaulle, or in Britain, we might go back to Harold Wilson. But those types of heads of state, heads of government are no longer around. And in the United States, we have individuals which are really the uh, they're really the instruments of the corporate lobby groups. They're not providing any leadership. I don't think that, that uh, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton can, can provide any leadership with regard to decision-making. They will, they will abide by the instructions which are transmitted to them by their corporate sponsors. And, um, and then, of course, there's also a consensus as to what is politically correct as to what you do. The New World Order is, is, a, is a global capitalist system. It is based on, on hegemony. It's based on military power. I think one would also say that it, it is characterized by the outright criminalization of politics. Um, the fact that we, we don't really have honest people in government anymore, very few. Um, it's also the fact that in the course of the last 20 or 30 years, all uh, socialist and or social democratic projects have been eliminated in one form or another. We can, we can think of Nicaragua, you know, back in the early 80s, uh, of course, Guatemala, Salvador as well. We can think of Vietnam, obliterated uh, through the Vietnam War. Cambodia, Indonesia from the, you know, from the early 60s, uh, well, early mid-60s. Uh, we can look at Chile, Argentina, Mozambique, 
Angola, numerous countries, Algeria, numerous countries whose project has been obliterated and destroyed. Um, in other words, there's no longer any nationalism and, and there's no longer any um, reformist government which acts on behalf of its population and there's no longer any what we might call representative government. That is the new world order. It's the concentration of power by corporations. Uh, it is also, it's not necessarily a smooth process because those corporations are waging their own battle against one another. Uh, you know, they're merging, they're buying up, they have manipulations directed against their competitors. Um, but ultimately, what's happening is that the world is being precipitated beyond poverty. It's no longer an issue of mass poverty. It's, it's also an issue of total despair. In other words, uh, we had an era where where we talked about the globalization of poverty. I, I spent many years investigating that theme, uh, but I, I have the hunch that now we're, we're talking about something quite different. It's, it's, uh, it's beyond the globalization of poverty. It, it's, uh, it's not only the impoverishment of large sectors of the world population, it, it, it is precipitating people into into total despair, and it's the destruction of the, the institutional fabric, the collapse of, of schools, hospitals, which are closed down, the legal system disintegrates, borders are redefined, and uh, essentially this, this stage, which goes beyond impoverishment, is the transformation of countries into territories. And we see it occurring in the Middle East, uh, the objective for Iraq and Libya and Yemen is certainly to transform a country into a territory. And then you recolonize it. You're in a very different environment to, to that which has prevailed until recently. What are the main corporate actors of the New World Order? Well, I would say, broadly speaking, that the main corporate actors of the New World Order, first of all, it's Wall Street and the Western banking conglomerates. Uh, and that includes also the offshore facilities, the Cayman Islands and so on. We talked a lot about that with the Panama Papers. But in effect, all those offshore locations are controlled uh, by the large banking institutions. Um, and of course, it's also linked up to money laundering and, and drugs and so on. The military industrial complex, at least that's what Eisenhower called it, regrouping the so-called uh, defense contractors. They're not defense contractors, they're war contractors. The security, the mercenary companies, the intelligence outfits uh, on contract to the Pentagon, the large private security companies uh, such as um, R4S, which in some sense was also connected to the Orlando events, um, then you have, of course, the, the energy companies, the Anglo-American oil and energy giants. They're very important. Um, and, and then you have the biotech conglomerates, 
which increasingly control agriculture and the food chain. Monsanto is, is of course, part of that. Monsanto, Cargill, and the big uh, corporate food companies are part of that. Uh, then overlapping with the biotech conglomerates, you have big pharma, the large pharmaceutical companies. And I should say that those large pharmaceutical companies, they also overlap with the military-industrial complex because they... They, they also produce chemical and biological weapons. And then you have, of course, the communications giants, the media conglomerates, which are part of the propaganda arm of the, of the New World Order. Um, and there's overlap between all these various, these are very broad categories, but I think that, that uh, essentially, to summarize, Wall Street and the Western banking conglomerates, the military-industrial complex, the Anglo-American oil and energy giants, the biotech conglomerates, big pharma, and, and the global media conglomerates. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Neoliberalism and the New World Order. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Describe the process by which local protest grassroots movements against neoliberal policy are co-opted by the very forces of neoliberalism. Well, this is a very important question because the, the consequences of neoliberalism, as we see in different parts of the world, create conditions of mass protest. And what has occurred is that the seats of power, the New World Order, primarily Wall Street, the financial conglomerates, um, they not only control the governments which, which are implementing these neoliberal policies, but they also indirectly control the protest movement, uh, which is funded by the corporate tax-free foundations. It's not to say that all protest movements are funded by, by Wall Street, but in effect, if we start to look into the whole nexus of non-governmental organization, uh, what we have is that many of these organizations, NGOs, civil society organizations, uh, historically linked to the protest movement, are in fact funded by private foundations, including the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Bacati Foundations, among others. Uh, the Tides Foundation uh, has a mandate to fund progressive organizations. It's a, a multi-million dollar foundation. And it just so happens that the Tide Foundation is then receiving uh, grants from from several of the corporate foundations, including the Rockefellers and the Fords. So that what is at stake is that the entities which are opposed to neoliberalism are, in a sense, funded by neoliberalism. You, you take the, the situation, let's say, of Occupy Wall Street. Well, Occupy Wall Street, on the one hand, has a mandate to go against Wall Street, okay? But then when you start to examine who is behind them, who is funding them, uh, they're funded by, by tax-free foundations. 
So Wall Street funds the protest movement against Wall Street. Very convenient. Now, just to go back to Brazil, because it's very important, is that at the inception of, of Lula's government in 2002, 2003, uh, the World Social Forum was, was created. And what were they doing? They were celebrating the victory of the PT government of the Workers' Party of Brazil over neoliberalism. Yet, if we go back to the origins of the World Social Forum, well, the World Social Forum was funded by the Ford Foundation. And we know that the Ford Foundation uh, has links to, to U.S. intelligence, in fact, historical links to U.S. intelligence. And, and there we can, we can quote... Uh, we can quote um, a former president of, of the Ford Foundation who said, and I quote, everything the Ford Foundation did could be regarded as making the world safe for capitalism, reducing social tensions by helping to comfort the afflicted, provide safety valves for the angry, and improve the functioning of government. Okay? That is the mandate of the Ford Foundation. It's to fund people who don't like the capitalist system, who are protesting, but at the same time, you establish, you establish the limits of dissent. And in a sense, you manufacture dissent. And uh, in, in essence, by providing the funding as well as the policy framework, these um, tax-free foundations are in a position to, to manipulate and to establish the boundaries of dissent. And um, my experience is that the ritual of the elites consists in inviting so-called civil society leaders into their inner circles with a view to establishing dialogue and so on and so forth, and ultimately... What this consists in is essentially to co-opt them. And you co-opt them by financing them. And the World Social Forum is a good example of that. And um, many of these um, non-governmental organizations have been caught in the nexus of, of corporate funding. Uh, and they are consequently not in a position really to, to challenge the fundamental uh, goals of, of this New World Order agenda. How does propaganda f- function as an integral part of the New World Order? For example, is intelligence embedded in the mass media? And then, as well, could you talk about some of the alternative media? Well, certainly the mass media or the mainstream media has historical links to intelligence agencies. This, this is known and documented. It, it's clear that the mainstream media is there to support a consensus with regard to foreign policy. It's there to distort events. But it's got to such an extent, because the mainstream media hasn't always been like that. I mean, if we go back to the Vietnam War, well, we had critical reporting of what was happening up to a point. But if we, if we start to look and see how, how does the mainstream media cover the war in Syria, well, they forget to mention that ISIS, the Islamic State, is supported covertly by the United States. And it, they, they actually will admit it, and then they will 
they will in a sense refute their own lies. They will admit it in, in so and so many words. They'll say, oh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia are supporting the ISIS, but Turkey and Saudi Arabia are allies of the United States. Saudi Arabia doesn't act uh, without consulting Washington. Uh, so there we have a, a mainstream media uh, which has evolved towards essentially presenting the lie as the truth. And, and that's a fundamental relationship because when the lie becomes the consensus, there's no turning backwards. And I, when I say the lie becomes the truth or the lie becomes a consensus, is to say the United States is waging a war against terrorists. Ah, but you fail to mention that the terrorists are actually funded by the United States and they were created by the CIA. And everybody knows that, but at the same time, we don't really believe in it anymore and we believe in the lie. So it, it's not to say that, that the truth is obfuscated. It's, it's a different mechanism. It's the truth which becomes the lie and the lie becomes the truth so that people have to believe the lie even though they know that the lie is a lie. <laughs> it's not the truth, so to speak. i give you another example. We, we know that the torture chambers in Guantanamo, everybody knows it, okay? Uh, and nobody is in the process of hiding it. But what the media will do is to provide legitimacy to torture. Uh, it will also provide legitimacy to going in and killing people in Libya or assassinating the head of state or uh, bombing, uh, well, Syria is more complex because there they say that the bombing is done by the government against their own people. But, of course, that lie is difficult to, <laughs> it, it doesn't really hold up anymore. But essentially that is what is at stake, is that the media, as an instrument of propaganda, has turned realities upside down. It has um, created... Uh, a consensus which people dare not question. It, it upholds war as a humanitarian endeavor. It upholds war as a humanitarian endeavor, as a, as a peacemaking undertaking. And in effect, what this means is that both uh, politics as well as the media are criminalized. Because we have criminals in high office which are involved in making war in the name of peace. And then we have a media which serves as propaganda to uphold those lies. And at the same time, it means that the media is complicit in the criminalization of the state. Without the media serving as a as an instrument of propaganda, the military agenda would not have a leg to stand on. The whole construct of U.S. foreign policy would collapse like a deck of cards if it were subjected to truthful analysis within the media and confrontation and so on. But that does not happen. And there you have the complicity of, you have also the complicity of intellectuals, uh, and you have the complicity of the universities, of the think tanks, and so on. Um, there's a politically correct way of studying, uh, uh, let's say, international affairs, which is set. You don't discuss the role of 
the United States is supporting terrorist organizations. You don't uh, underscore the fact that 30% of the population of North Korea was wiped out due to U.S. bombings. You don't say anything about the almost 1 million uh, Indonesians who were assassinated on orders of the CIA in, in the mid-60s. Uh, all of this, of course, is documented in the archives, but it's never the object of any kind of debate. And then history is erased. Okay? History is erased, and, and we are led to believe uh, that the United States is, is involved in a, a global crusade to instill democracy and Western values. There's a lot of skepticism, however, which is unfolding uh, in relation to media disinformation. Now, you, you asked the question on the alternative media, and the alternative media, I think, is also going through a, a period of crisis because um, there are certain segments of the alternative media which, in fact, are controlled by the mainstream. Uh, there's a whole issue of half-truths and half-lies. Then... Um, there's the issue of saying, well, you know, we're fighting terrorism, but if we had proceeded otherwise, they wouldn't be terrorist organizations. But still, again, the fundamental truths are not revealed in, in many of these um, alternative media formulations. And what I think is very important, if we want to disarm a military agenda, we need a very cohesive counter-propaganda campaign. And uh, we, we have to wage that counter-propaganda campaign without being funded by those who are behind the propaganda campaign, so to speak. That's the problem with some of the, the alternative media. They're funded by, by corporate foundations so that they are, in a sense, very much limited in the things that they can say against the New World Order. Again, if I'm thinking of the United States, the links that, that progressive groups have to the Democratic Party, of course, is a constraint in their ability to, let's say, to, to take a position uh, with regard to, to major issues of, of U.S. foreign policy. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Well, delighted to be on the program again. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been Neoliberalism and the New World Order. Michel Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michel Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity, as well as co-editor of the anthology The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. All books are available at globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. 
Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Just so-